Good morning, everyone. You know, I was thinking that this week, this past week, has been just a great week for Laguna Beach because we started our two main festivals. We started Festival of the Arts, and we started the Sawdust Festival. And I got to, because there's a gentleman right here, Gil, I, my wife and I, Michelle, got to go to the Festival of the Arts, the preview, for the very first time. It was awesome. I've never really gone through that before, so it was great. I would invite all of you, if you haven't been there, to go there. Um, and I was thinking, you know, there's this, as I'm learning more about Laguna Beach, I've been noticing there's like this symbiotic relationship between Laguna Beach and its artists. When things are good for the artists, they're good for Laguna Beach. And when things are good for Laguna Beach, they're good for the artists. So you have this relationship that goes back and forth of those two. What I want us to do today is, as we look at our passage, I want us to ask a question that might be a little odd when you first see it, which is, what is the Christian life good for? Now, I know that sounds maybe not correct English right off, but I purposefully am using that word good for um, because you can think of something good for, like, for example, exercise. What is exercise good for? It's good for health. And I want to ask ourselves, what's the Christian life good for? So the definition of good for, if you look it up, means that it results in something good or desirable or it has a beneficial effect done. So as we're going through this passage today, it's a well-known passage. It's a Good Samaritan passage. I want us to keep in mind this question. What is this Christian life that we're all living good for? So if you can, I would like you to pull your Bibles out and turn to our passage today. It's on page 869 if you're using the Pew Bible. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 25. Instead of me reading the whole passage, we're going to walk through this passage pretty much verse by verse. It's sort of, you can almost like pretend if you haven't, you know, you probably have read it many times. But as we walk through, I want you to sort of imagine this is the first time I'm sort of hearing this passage. Now, I'm going to put the passage up here on the screen. We're going to look at the first half of the dialogue. And I purposefully, so it doesn't confuse you, I've divided out the passages, and I show you who is talking, because it can get confusing. So you have the lawyer, you have Jesus, you have the lawyer, you have Jesus, but also what you have is you have a pattern where there's questions that are being asked, there's answers that are being given, there's responses or commands that are being given as a result of that. And so it's good to sort of see how this lays out, because this unveils some things as we walk through. So to begin with, there is a lawyer that comes up and talks to Jesus and asks him a question. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of context. A couple weeks ago, Jeff spoke on the passage that really gives context to what we're going to be looking at with the Good Samaritan. Where we're at right now is Jesus is coming down to Jerusalem for his last time. He's coming from northern Israel by the Sea of Galilee. He's traveling down and he's coming down towards Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, when Jeff spoke, he spoke on a passage in uh, Luke 9:51 that really gives us context to what we're going to look at today. Because as Jesus was coming down, him and his disciples were going through an area called Samaria. And in Samaria lived the Samaritans. And so, as we found out in that passage, as he's going through, the Samaritans reject what Jesus is saying, and the disciples respond, well, let's bring down fire and brimstone on them. Let's kill them. Jesus says, no, hold on. And so you can see there is obviously an animosity, a relationship where these two are enemies, the Jews, the Judean Jews in the south of Israel, 
that live in Jerusalem area, they hate the Samaritans. And there's a whole history that goes back to the Old Testament for that. They've killed each other through different wars. They were Israelites who had gone off and married through other religions and through other people. So these are two people groups that literally hate each other and are enemies to each other. And so this is the context, is that somewhere as Jesus has just come through that exchange that happened with his disciples up in Samaria. Now to give a little context, the lawyer, their job is, and I think expert of the law is maybe a better term, their job is they know the Old Testament, which is the only Bible that exists at that time, the Hebrew Scriptures. They know that by memory. And their job is to teach those Scriptures to other people. And so they teach these Scriptures to other people, but they also, their role is to make sure people are following the law. And so they're going around making sure people are following the law. And you see a lot of exchanges in other parts of the Gospel about this. And so this lawyer, having heard now of Jesus and all the controversy surrounding him and him claiming all this authority and all these miracles he's working, he wants to find out, is this guy for real? Does he agree with what we know is true in the Old Testament scriptures? And so we start out, and you can you know, detect a little animosity going on because it says, and behold, the lawyer stood up to put him, being Jesus, to test. And he says, teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Probably the most important question anybody can ever answer. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus does, if you ever have raised teenagers, Jesus does what teenagers do. You ask them a question, and what do they do? Ask you a question back. (laughs) Drives you crazy. But here, this is a common thing that would happen between different Jews, particularly teachers, is they would go back and forth asking these questions. So Jesus responds by putting it back on the lawyer. And he says, well, he says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The law referring to the Old Testament and particularly to the first five books of what's called the Torah. And so Jesus says, well, answer your own question. You know the Bible so well, why don't you tell me? And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't just say what is written. In other words, what does the law say? But he says, how do you read it? In other words, how do you interpret it? What does this mean to you? So he's asking him to have to think about it a little bit. Then comes back the lawyer. And this is what the lawyer, and this should surprise us. I want you to think about why it should surprise us. Because the lawyer comes back and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, you probably have heard that before. And in fact, you probably have heard of it and attributed it to Jesus. Because Jesus, when asked what's the greatest commandment, put these two together. So the lawyer is answering the same thing Jesus answers, which means we know this combination. What we see here is something that's been known to the Jews, and they've discussed as to what is the greatest commandment. But what you might not know is that this answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind, and your neighbors yourself, is actually two different passages in the Old Testament. Loving your God with all your heart is in Deuteronomy 6.5. And this is what's called the Shema. The Jews knew this by heart. They would say it multiple times a day. This is a scripture in which they base their whole existence on, is Deuteronomy 6.5. But what's interesting is the other half the part that says, and your neighbor as yourself, 
is found in a book that I want to just wonder how many of you in your devotions today were in this book? Leviticus. Okay. How many of you were in Leviticus for your devotions today? No? no? I mean, it's a great book all about the law. All right. But what's fascinating is this book that we so often think, I would not want to read that. That's where both Jesus and the lawyer picks up the second commandment, that we not only are to love God, but we are also to love our neighbor. And then Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, as you look at this exchange here, one thing I want to point out is that the lawyer asks a question, Jesus asks a question, the lawyer gives an answer, and then Jesus affirms that answer and says, you've answered correctly. He's answered both, the lawyer has answered both of those questions correctly. So when he says, you've answered correctly, both of them were correct. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus is affirming, yes, you've gone both of these right. So as we look at this exchange, you know, you can just write off, going back to that question I asked you, is what is a Christian life good for? You can just see here are some things a Christian life is good for. It's good for living life to its fullest. That eternal life is not just living forever. That eternal life is something that we have today. As Jesus says in John 10, I've come to give you life today and to give you it to the fullest abundant life. He wants us to live a full, abundant life today, not just for eternity. So that's one thing that our Christian life is good for. It's also good for getting to know God through his word. So we've been given God's word through the scriptures. How do we get to know God? I get to know Jeff. I get to know Gil. I get to know people by having conversations with them, talking to them. This is where we have that conversation with God. This is where he tells us who he is. So that's another thing that the Christian life is good for. And finally, it's good for loving God. That's what we just read about. Now, at this point, you would think that this conversation would be done because Jesus says you've answered correctly. But then Jesus says what? Not just that you're right, but he says, now go and live it. And what's interesting is the part that the lawyer has a problem with going and living is not about loving God. He knows how to do that with all of his heart. That's what he's been doing. He wants to know, what about this love your neighbor as yourself? Loving God, okay, but love your neighbor as yourself? And why does he want to know that? Why does he want to delve more into Jesus concerning your neighbor? Well, because one thing that he does know is that phrase, which often trips us up a little bit, your neighbor as yourself, what does that mean? Well, it has a meaning. Because in Leviticus, when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, and I'll get into Hebrew just very quickly, there is a little letter, one letter, that sits in front of that word love in Hebrew in that passage that basically says you are to love. Not just love, but to love, meaning action. And so the lawyer knows that what this really means is that the meaning in Leviticus is I am to look out at my neighbor and I am to do what's good for them. I am to do what benefits them. I am to even do so when it means I have to sacrifice something about myself, when it means that I have to give up my own interests for the sake of another. That's the meaning of Leviticus. So it's no wonder that the conversation continues. 
And so now we have the second part of the conversation. And what you have now happening is a lawyer then says, but desiring to justify himself, in other words, a lawyer wants to make himself right, he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Because he knows he has to love this person in that way we just talked about. How am I supposed to do this? And I think it's interesting. Notice how the lawyer doesn't say, who are my neighbors in the plural? He just says, who's my neighbor? Maybe just one person. Maybe there's just one person I have to do that with. And so he's wondering, well, who is that? This is where we're going to pause for a second because you'll notice that in between the first question and the next question that Jesus then asks is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's important for us to look at this way first to understand when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, what is it really there for? I don't know if you've ever asked that. What's the parable really answering? And so if you look here, you've got the same thing. The lawyer is going to answer the question, the one who showed him mercy, which would be the Good Samaritan, we'll find out. That's the answer. That answer answers both of those questions. But what is so radical about what Jesus does is in the second question, Jesus completely turns on his head what that lawyer thinks a neighbor is and what each one of us think a neighbor is. So let me give you an illustration of what it's doing. Notice what happens. The lawyer says, who is my neighbor? Jesus says at the end of the parable, referring back to the parable, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? What's the difference? Who's my neighbor? Who proved to be my neighbor? Here's the difference. I can look at all of you right now, and I know that all of you, whether I really know you or not, Jesus would say, the Bible would say, God would say, all of you are my neighbors. In fact, as we know, all of you are my neighbors, whether you're my enemy or whether you're not, whether you like me or whether you don't. All of you are my neighbors. That's the question that the lawyer is asking. Who's my neighbor? For me, I would say the answer is all of you. But what do I have to do about that? Exactly. I don't have to do a thing. Great, I'm right. All of you are my neighbor. Would you all agree? Of course. Okay. What do I have to do about that? Nothing. I don't have to act in that. Jesus turns us around and says, you know what? The real question is, who am I going to choose to become a neighbor to? Who am I going to become a neighbor to? So I can walk down this aisle and I can say, who in this aisle am I going to choose to say, hey, I want you to be my neighbor and then take the action and I'm the one that initiates that and now I'm the neighbor to him. Do you see the difference? It's radical. Jesus is saying when you talk about your neighbors, what it really is about, it is really about who you become a neighbor to, not that just everyone is your neighbor. And that is what the Good Samaritan parable answers. It answers how do we become a neighbor to someone else. Yes, it answers everyone should be my neighbor, including my enemies. But it says, okay, but what really is the commandment is that I, as I go through my life, look and say, I'm going to become a neighbor to you or to you or to you. 
And who's that going to be? So we're going to now take a look at the parable. And here is the parable. This is the first half of it. So I want you to keep that in mind. What this parable is answering ultimately is how do I become a neighbor to someone? Because that's what the command Jesus says when he says, love your neighbor to yourself. That's the command all the way from the Old Testament, all the way to what Jesus is commanding us to do. So here's the first half of the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. That's the first half of the parable. How many of you, when you're reading that, it says he's going, actually it's saying he's going on a road, the other way, the man was going down and really says on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right, I mean, how many of you have gone down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Is there anybody here? And so also, when you're going down that road, when you think about going to the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, I mean, how many of you meet priests on the road? How many of you meet Levites? Obviously, this is written in a different culture in a different time. And you know what? It's really key to understand what that culture was back then for us to understand that because here's little church by the sea. All right? Do you guys see your cars parked around there? Okay. All right. <laughs> there's little church by the sea. And when you think of a road, you think of a road like Legion Street that leads from the high school down past little church to the sea, down to PCH, down to the beach. There's little church. And so when you hear that he passed by on the other side, what do you think? He just crossed the road. He saw something. He didn't want to avoid it. The priest and the Levite gets across, goes to the other side of the road, and goes past. That's what you would think. We're going to take a little trip. And we're going to go from here, Little Church, and Legion Street, and we're going to go halfway around the world to really a time when Jesus told the story. And so what you're looking at here is this is Israel. There's Israel right here, okay? There's Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice there's Jericho. There is a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this is where the road is. So we're now going to fly and look down. The road exists among what's called a wadi. This was not unusual. This is a desert area here. This wadi right here is where water obviously has flown for thousands of years. It's created this wadi, and the road goes along there. Now, this is not the road. This is actually a a modern-day road. The road we're going to look at is the road that is that Jesus is talking about when he gives this parable, because that road is really going along here and down to this part. And I got the privilege back in 1999, to walk a lot of this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is what the road looks like. Does it look like a road? I'm taking this picture. This is my group that I'm with, and there is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's not a road. It is a small little trail. And you can see how precarious that trail is because if you just slip, you fall all the way down into the wadi. 
But Jesus in this parable is telling a story that they all get because this road was heavily traveled, particularly by priests and Levites from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 17 miles long. It goes about 1,200 feet of elevation. Jericho is the lowest city on the face of the earth. And they would travel back and forth. Why? Because mostly the priests and the Levites lived in Jericho. Jericho was sort of a wealthy town. It's where a lot of people who had jobs and were doing well off lived in Jericho. And so what would happen is these priests and these Levites, they would be doing stints of like two weeks at a time up at the temple, and then they would travel the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, come back home until their next time to go, and then they would travel back up that road there. Now Jesus says that a man was robbed on this road. Well, how does that happen? This is how it happens. This is what it looks like as you're walking down that road. All on your left and right, you see caves. Caves that people can be in that could rob you. All right, so when Jesus says, and this person was robbed, this was not unusual to happen. Very common, in fact, okay, because you had people waiting out to say, who can I rob and steal whatever they have? So you have a little context now. So now let's follow the story a little bit as to what happens. Here's another picture of the trail that I took, and I'm off the trail a little bit um, on this side of it. And you can see the people walking along here, and again, you can see it's how precarious this is. And up in here are these different caves that people could be up there to rob someone. So let's walk through the story. So a man, let's just hypothetically say somewhere, a man, and let's just say right there, a man gets robbed. He's lying half dead, probably naked or very close to it. Can't even tell who he is. He's hurt. He's injured. And a priest comes along, walking along, and sees this man hurt there, injured. Doesn't even know if he's alive maybe or not. And what does a priest do? He goes by on the other side. Where's the other side? Guess what? To get to the other side, you have to walk all the way back around, all the way down to a place where you can get to the other side of the wadi, climb all the way back up, and go on the other side. He had to really go out of his way to get to the other side. And obviously, why? Because he wants to avoid anybody getting robbed. He doesn't want to be robbed. There's obviously robbers there. Someone just got robbed. I'm going to get out of there. He literally goes to the other side. So to the Levite, when he came, it gives a little bit of an idea that the Levite goes a little closer <laughs> to the man and says, no, nah, I'm not going to go next, go by him. The Levite too then decides to pass by on the other side. Now, the Levite and the priest, I want you to just put yourself in their position. If you were them, how many of us would pass by on the other side? What's the chance that if there's someone robbed down there, what's the chance that if you continue to go down that trail, you're going to get robbed and put your life in jeopardy? For the priest, if he was to go and touch this man and get contaminated, the Jewish law would say he may, might not be able to work for X amount of period of time because he would have to go through this whole cleansing ritual. And the Levite, not so strict... But he, too, and who does a Levite work for, by the way? 
the Levite is the one that assists the priest in the temple. He's like his boss. It's like, if my boss isn't going to go down there, I'm not going down there. I'm not going to take a chance. So you can see there's some real good reasons why you would not go and help that man. And those might be right reasons. But Jesus says, hold on. He says, but a Samaritan, as he came, came to where the man was, and what? Went straight up to the man and helped him. So why is it that the Samaritan chooses to do this? Or what does the Samaritan do, really? Look at here. You notice that the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, all three saw the man. They all three saw the man. What's the difference about what the Samaritan did? There are two main things that, that turn the Samaritan into the good Samaritan. Turn the Samaritan from just saying, well, that was my neighbor out there, but I don't really have to help him, to saying, I'm going to become a neighbor to this man that's been robbed and in need. Look what the Samaritan did. He comes to where the man that's injured at is. He walks up to that man he sees the injured man. He gets this close. He sees him. And what does it say happens next? He has compassion. Do you ever wonder why sometimes we think to ourselves, why don't I have more compassion for those in need? Jesus answers that question because you know what? We don't get close enough. We don't come up and get close to the person. And when you get close to a person and you see what their needs are, whether they're physical needs or whether they're emotional, they just need someone to talk to, whatever that is, that's when we get close enough that we develop and say, I have compassion for them. And that compassion is then what triggers and leads us into doing something to become that person's neighbor. But you have to get close. That's the key difference with what the Samaritan does, is he actually gets up to the man, develops that compassion... And then what does he do? It now says, how does he become a neighbor? Well, he already took the first steps. He got close. He saw the need of that man. He developed the compassion. And then out of that compassion, the first thing he does is he goes to him. And what does he do? The man's bleeding. The man's about ready to die. Very close to death, we get the idea. And what does the man do? What, what does he do? He goes to him. He binds up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. The first thing he does is take care of the immediate needs of that person, of that man, and make sure that he's not going to die. Now, what's interesting is this parable is structured to compare and contrast what the Samaritan does with the priest and the Levite. It's the Levite that had the training in how to go up and heal someone's wounds. That's what Levites are trained to know how to do. The Levite passed by on the other side. The Samaritan does what the Levite should have done. Same, too, with the priest, because he then puts him on his own animal. And by the way, animal there means packing animal, like a donkey or a mule. A priest almost always, because he had more money, would be going on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, not walking, but on a donkey or on a mule, getting his own ride. And so here we're contrasting it, that the Good Samaritan puts him on his own animal, brings him to an inn, and took care of him. 
So you can imagine, he puts him on this donkey, throws him over this donkey or mule, and then he walks into town. What town does he walk into? He walks into Jericho. He's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he takes him to an inn. What was the Samaritan? The Samaritan were the enemies of the Jews, the Judean Jews. Where did the Judean Jews live? In Jericho. And now comes this good Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews. Good illustration is think back at cowboy Indian movies. Guys, in cowboy Indian movies, you have Dodge City, where all the cowboys are at, right? All right, and so you're in Dodge City, and all of a sudden you look out, you see a horse out there, and someone's walking alongside that horse, and as it starts coming in view, you see that there's a body over that horse. And as it starts coming closer and closer, the person that's guiding the horse is not a cowboy. It's an Indian. What kind of risks do you think that Indian would be taking coming into Dodge City? What kind of risk? Risking his life for this man by this good Samaritan coming into a place where only the lived there was predominantly his enemies, the Jews. And yet he brings this man, takes that risk, takes him to an end, and takes care of him. And then last, the last thing that happens, takes out two denarii, he gives it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So at the very end, what does this man who was stripped of everything, and now what does he have? He has his health restored, and he has what? He has a friend. He has a, someone who's become his neighbor. There's going to be this ongoing relationship that goes on between the two. So you can see in this Good Samaritan parable, it's saying, how do you become a neighbor to someone else? So when I ask you that question, what is a Christian life good for? What this Good Samaritan passage that we're looking at in parable tells us, our Christian life is good for becoming a neighbor to those in need. What are we to do with this Christian life we've been given? We've been given it so we can become neighbors to others. Jesus, the only one new commandment he gave, only one new commandment Jesus gave in the New Testament. That new commandment was in John 13, 34, that says, now you go love as I have loved you. And that's what we see in this Good Samaritan parable. We see a reflection of what Jesus has done for us. He risked coming down, God becoming man. He risked his life and went to the cross and died on the cross for all of us. And why did he do that? So we could now all be his friend, be in relationship with him. And so he's really asking us to say, I've given you this life, this eternal life of a relationship with God, and I've given to you so you can be there to be good for not just yourself, but more importantly, good for others. Jesus now gives us this command. He says to the lawyer, now you go and do likewise. And now he says to us, you go, all of us, me, all of us, you go and do likewise. And I want to end by looking at a passage from Paul, which really reflects what we're talking about here. And so here's a passage, 1 Corinthians 10, now listen to this whole thing that Jesus had just revealed in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what he said to the lawyer. Now I want you to listen 
to what Paul now says about what is the Christian life good for? What is our life good for? He says, and this was a saying by the Corinthians, by the way, they would say, oh, I have a right to do anything. I'm free in Christ. I'm free of the law. I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, well, in a sense, yes, you're free in Christ, but you've been given that freedom for something. You've been given it so everything you do is beneficial towards another. And that's really what that word means. You, you say, I have the right to do it all. Well, but what are you doing that's good? What are you doing that's beneficial is what's important. And then it says, I have a right to do anything again. But then Paul says, no. What is it you're doing that builds others up? Again, the focus on how is it good for others. And then Paul puts it so directly. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, which those three words encompass everybody in the entire world, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So that they may be saved. Follow my example, Paul says. He was practicing what the Good Samaritan did. As I follow what? Christ, who set that example for us. So I leave you with one question. Is your Christian life good for others? Is your Christian life good for others? Amen.